0: Today I chose to re-release my very first episode. Recorded on January 15th, 2021, it tries to put into words why the United States of America is such a unique system among civilizations. It also explains why, despite the efforts that have grown in the past few years to cast our nation as nothing exceptional, and despite that it now appears most definitely headed in the wrong direction, why it still remains the shining city on the hill, and a beacon of freedom to the world. Our founders were not perfect, for goodness sakes, they were human, but they were innovative and intelligent and focused on creating a government like none seen before. I hope you enjoy this backstory of the real America, the one so many suffer to enter every year. And I hope you enjoy a return to this very first episode and the love of country it intended to embody. Solus Veritas, and this is the Defending American Exceptionalism podcast. It appears many Americans have forgotten what makes America exceptional. This podcast is here to remind them. The greatest country on earth has been so successful that it may now be suffering from that very success. The lack of any real suffering in recent decades has made it all too easy for people to criticize and malign the greatest country ever to have been established by man. While sitting comfortably in their centrally heated homes, watching big screen TVs, Interacting with their fellow men primarily through social media and experiencing life events via virtual reality video games, this podcast is meant to serve as a reminder and tutorial on the unique and special form of government our founders created, and to explain the real history, purpose, and structure of America. It hopes to offer a counter to the falsities gaining popularity in the past twenty years, and probably even longer, that America is no better than any other country, no different, and no more honorable. Indeed, the very qualities of our country and her people that make it great are under attack in a way that threatens the very foundation on which it balances. Keyboard warriors, echo chambers, and virtue signaling with no substance are all the means by which individuals hide from any thoughtful discourse with their neighbors and make nearly impossible any honest, intellectual discussion of the issues of the day. If you'd like to engage in those types of discussions, stay tuned. This episode is being recorded on January 15th, 2021. As you will see, this date is perfect, as it is also the deadline for those of us who are self-employed to have the great joy of sending in our last quarterly estimated tax payment to our government for the prior year. Episode 1. Why America? Why is it different? How did it all truly begin? Is the America of our founders even still in existence? It was not easy to decide what topic to cover in this very first episode, but the recent assault on America's founding made me realize how many, many people have no historical understanding of what makes this country so special. This first episode is a necessary exploration of America's history, a history constantly being rewritten and criticized to serve the political goals of those who seek to destroy the very foundation that makes the United States of America, as Ronald Reagan described it, the shining city upon a hill. Consider this episode a foundation upon which we can start to explore in future episodes the many serious issues the country is now facing. How, in just a few short decades, have we gone from a view of America as a bright light of freedom to a view of America as some sort of evil system of oppression? And why? At least in part, this changing view is due to intentional misrepresentations and historical falsehoods regularly stated in the mainstream media and in our academic institutions. They make these false statements. They sell this false history to gain power and control. The biased history now being taught to younger generations lacks factual support and is dangerous, as it is indoctrinating entire generations into a way of thinking that is actually counter to the fundamental principles of our country. And why would anyone want to rewrite our country's history? George Orwell likely explained it best in his sadly predictive novel, 1984. Who controls the past controls the future. Who controls the present, controls the past. Beyond the concept that history is written by the winners, this realization goes a step beyond mere writing of history, rewriting of history, and revising it, and understands that those in charge of media and academia, call them the winners, I suppose, at this point, by revising history can control the past, present, and future of the country. And that is exactly what they are aiming to do. It is totalitarian, and it is terrifying. China, the Soviet Union, Nazi Germany, and the fictional world of Orwell's 1984 are all warnings that by giving up too much ground to those who will alter the truth about the country and its founding, we are giving up our country itself. The Founders' goal was to structure the government to do as much as possible to prevent this kind of totalitarianism. Thomas Jefferson may have said it most succinctly, A government big enough to give you everything you want is strong enough to take everything you have. That sentiment is no less true than when applied to the media and academic institutions that have grown in size and power and are controlled by a troubling group of extremely anti-American elites. Let's identify some of the outright lies that have been and are being peddled to our citizens and then compare those lies to the truth about our independence from Britain and the wrongs the colonists were seeking to right by severing ties with the king. The most prominent of these revisionist histories, perhaps because it is the most recent and most extreme attempt to change history, is currently the 1619 Project. You may have heard of it, and it's possible your children are even learning it in school. A collection of New York Times Magazine essays that somehow received a Pulitzer Prize for commentary despite being full of fabricated dribble, the theory of the 1619 Project sought to convince Americans that our founders fought for freedom from Britain in order to preserve slavery. I'm not sure how one wins a Pulitzer Award for commentary for a made-up telling of the American founding, but then I rarely understand the basis for many awards these days. Perhaps some award in fiction would have been more appropriate. Here are just a few fact checks on the 1619 Project's revisionist history. First, the essays contain complete factual inaccuracies, including that Jamestown was the true founding of the country and that it was founded on slavery. This assertion is based on the fact that in 1619, 20 African slaves arrived in the colony. But Jamestown was a British company settlement founded about a decade before any slaves were present at all. And slavery was not the foundation of Jamestown, just as it was not and is not the foundation of the United States. Nor was much that was happening in 1619 directly related to the government created more than 150 years later following the American Revolution. Second, the essays of the 1619 Project start from the false premise that prior to their arrival in the colonies, these African men and women had been free. That is simply and sadly not the case. Not only were they likely enslaved in their native countries, but they were enslaved not by white Europeans, but by other African tribes. Slavery, a huge stain on humanity worldwide, one that progressives in the United States appear not to realize continues to this day in other parts of the world, was not limited to white men. Native American tribes and nations enslaved one another, just as African tribes and nations enslaved one another, and white tribes and nations had enslaved their own for centuries and nearly 10 million individuals remain enslaved on the African continent today. To overlook slavery's role in the United States and its dark place in history would be just as inappropriate as creating the false narratives we now hear. But to attempt to place the sin of slavery solely or even primarily on the United States above all others is morally and historically wrong. Nor can it be reasonably argued that the protection and continuation of slavery motivated the American Revolution and the country's founding. No real solid laws against any kind of slavery appeared in Britain until 1793. This is 17 years after the Declaration of Independence. And slavery remained legal in some form in British colonies until 1833, when Britain passed the slavery abolition law. And it's pure nonsense to believe and posit that the American Revolution was based, in any significant way, on some desire to maintain slavery, as slavery likely would have continued to be legal in the colonies for at least half a century had the country remained part of the British Empire. Taking this erroneous premise out of the 1619 Project essentially undercuts the entire project. It falls on its face with no factual basis. Even the creator of this nonsense, Nicole Hannah-Jones, was forced to backpedal some, as even the New York Times fact-checkers didn't buy this alternative universe of America's founding, admitting that the collection was merely hypothesizing a kind of what-if, rather than claiming it was the actual reason for the revolution or the country's founding. But the damage was already done. That admission didn't undo or even necessarily stop schools around the country from incorporating this slanderous theory of history into their curricula teaching young students not that America's founding was just and remarkable but that it was nothing but a racist attempt to continue slavery and certainly nothing special. And this backpedaling on the stories told in the 1619 Project certainly didn't stop them from being the basis of some of the riots and protests we saw this summer in support of racial equality. And the 1619 Project is not alone in attacks on not only the founders personally but on the very founding of the nation You see, if you can paint the founders as evil, you can extrapolate that to a conclusion, a very dangerous conclusion, that America itself is evil. If you can convince citizens their country is evil, you can overthrow its government from within, creating rotting of its foundations to allow you to recreate it as those in power see fit. The Huffington Post, The New York Times, and other publications regularly run articles touting the dark side of America's founding, the evil of the founding fathers, and that these men are owed no gratitude for the government they created. We need look no further than the tearing down of monuments to them to realize that we may already have lost the hearts of many Americans when it comes to the debt we owe our founders for our own freedoms. Sadly, these efforts to distort American history are not new or isolated. In the 1980s, Howard Zinn's widely popular book, A People's History of the United States, which has now sold several million copies, became a darling of our public schools. What could be wrong with the history of the United States? Well, nothing, if it was history and not fiction. A political radical and member of the Communist Party, a fact that was confirmed by later FBI files that were released, Zinn's telling of the American story was a collection of absolute lies. And Zinn didn't hide his motives in writing this unsupported history. He claimed regarding the book that, quote, if people knew history, they would scoff at the idea that the United States is a force for the betterment of humanity, end quote. The missing link in Zinn's claims is that his telling of American history is inaccurate and a fraud. It is exactly what one would have expected from Soviet propaganda about the United States during the Cold War. Of course, I make that statement, realizing that much of the romanticism surrounding socialism and communism for today's youth stems from a total lack of any knowledge of our recent history and our ultimate success against communism in the Cold War. I doubt the East Germans would support a return to their communist control prior to the fall of the Berlin Wall, but most students don't know those stories, and they may never. The praise for socialist and communist leaders is baffling. Positive press about the likes of Venezuela's socialist presidents Hugo Chavez and Nicolas Maduro, popular t-shirts giving superhero status to Marxist Che Guevara, positive descriptions in academic texts for Mao Zedong, China's brutal socialist leader, and the heaps of praise bestowed by many on the left in this country on Fidel Castro continue to be shocking and dishonest. Portraying these leaders in a positive light is nothing more than an attempt to paint the founders, democracy and free markets on the side of evil, and to treat these incredibly cruel and unsuccessful socialists as on the side of good. Nothing could be less American than the tactics and policies of these world figures, and the horrors suffered by their people should be sufficient to make clear that America is on the side of good. None of this is to say the founders were unflawed. All history is simplified to some degree to leave out some dirty details, and great men often do horrible things. But the greatness of what was created by these men cannot be overstated or overlooked. The founders themselves acknowledged the conflict between slavery and the free and just society they sought to establish, but they were also realists, stuck in the reality of their time. They had to start somewhere in hopes the country's future could be pointed in the direction of further advancing the ideals of an equal and free country, unencumbered by its government. Despite their wrongs, the Founding Fathers successfully formed the most free country on earth, a country where more people of different ethnicities, races, and national origins have been allowed and enabled to thrive economically and socially than in any other country in the world. Criticize personal failings of the Founders if you wish, but criticism of the most innovative approach to freedom and self-governance known to man is misplaced. Needless to say, there were triumphs and tragedies in our founding, tragic trade-offs favoring one type of freedom over the other, that had to be made if the country was going to exist at all. But that it does exist and continues to exist as a beacon of freedom for the world is no accident. No history is without dark times and blemishes, even for the most lofty and just of endeavors. But to overlook that despite their personal failings, these men created the most free and prosperous society, one that endures today, is a disservice to all of us and a threat to the country's continued success. The unique aspects that exist in the governmental structure they created in the United States Constitution are a remarkable result of the Founders' attempts to address many of the issues experienced with Britain. But the truth about the country's early years has been mired in attempts to rewrite history to fit present-day political narratives, that the country was built on white supremacy and oppression, and this attempt to undermine the founding has worked instead to undermine the Constitution itself. And where the Constitution no longer means what it says, we have shifted from a true society ruled by law to one more and more threatened by the rule of men. Now let's explore some of the real reasons the colonists broke with Britain, The situation in the mid-18th century within the colonies was akin to a powder keg. Frustration built over years was just waiting to blow. So we don't need today to start with or tackle any controversy about the arrival of Columbus or the original colonies to understand our country and what led to so many of the ingenious constitutional protections and governmental checks and balances put in place to prevent what the colonists had experienced at the hands of the British. From 1754 to 1763, the French and Indian War raged throughout North America. Resulting in the Treaty of Paris, the French ultimately conceded their lands east of the Mississippi River to Britain. But the war had been costly, leading to increased taxes on the colonies. The colonists were viewed as the proper subjects to pay these costs of war, since Britain viewed its expenses in the conflict as solely for the protection of those colonists, for their own benefit. It's important to note that the British and French had been at war for some time, and conflicts between them included years of conflict in Europe. But even while that war was underway, the British lost no opportunity to continuously tax the colonies. Key examples include the Sugar Act of 1764 and the Stamp Act of 1765. Just as they sound, they taxed these essential items of sugar and stamps, and both were met with similar hostility. The Stamp Act would result in riots, the burning of stamps, and the harassment of stamp dealers. But these violent episodes did nothing to lessen Britain's desire to control the colonies. And just a few years later, the Townshend Acts of 1767, four acts in all, attempted to collect revenue from the colonies that again were met with outright refusal to comply, and in some instances, with violence. Things became so unsettled that additional British military forces were sent to Boston, where in the following year, colonists and British army members clashed in such a way that ultimately British soldiers shot and killed five colonists on March 5, 1770. This was to become known as the Boston Massacre. Charged with murder, these soldiers were ultimately found not guilty, sparking even more dissatisfaction and distaste for the British. The British soldiers were represented by none other than future founding father John Adams. Adams then, as he would later, stood for the concepts of due process and protection against mob rule and mob violence. Along with Adams, other future founders, including Benjamin Franklin, also condemned the violence of the colonists that led to this bloodshed. The involvement of the likes of Franklin and Adams may be one of the first real insights into the Founders' thoughts on the rule of law. It should come as no surprise, then, that the protests ultimately protected by the U.S. Constitution's First Amendment are described specifically as the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. More than three years after the Townshend Acts, another key incident further separated the colonists from the king in Britain. Now referred to as the Boston Tea Party, this plot of destruction and revolt against the taxation of tea and the monopoly of the company importing it shed light on the boiling frustrations of many of the colonists. Again, though, many of the men who would be called upon to craft our country's government frowned upon the brutal and barbaric tactics used by colonists in incidents like this one. That is not to say that violence could ever have been avoided. There was an ever-growing rift between the British and those that sought to govern an ocean away but violence was not the founder's default nor preference. The British response to the Boston Tea Party, the Intolerable Acts of 1774, may be viewed as a kind of last straw. In response, the First Continental Congress convened formally to open discussion about the relationship with Britain. As more time passed, with no relief from the British government, war was becoming more accepted as the inevitable outcome. It is during these times that Patrick Henry, in discussing calls for equipping the Virginia military for this conflict with Britain, made his most famous statement. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. This proclamation was made just a month before clear hostilities were to begin, and Paul Revere was to make his famous ride from Charlestown to Lexington, Massachusetts to warn about the advancement of the British. Those British soldiers were moving toward Boston, planning to seize a colonial armory. Shots were fired. Who fired first is unclear, but what is clear is that as the British retreated, snipers were able to take out more than 200 of them, these future Americans were no longer willing to accept the legitimacy of British rule. Though much more could be said about the details of the conflicts between the colonists and Britain and about the colonists' ultimate defeat, with the aid of the French, of the British forces, and the gained independence from the crown, these incidents provide a quick look into exactly what types of governmental tyranny the founders were seeking to avoid in the creation of what would become the United States of America. It was not really until early 1776, however, that it may truly have become clear that it was independence the colonists were seeking, Thomas Paine's Common Sense pam- pamphlet, which sold more than a hundred thousand copies, planted the seed of independence in the mind of the colonists. And just months later, on July 4, 1776, the Declaration of Independence formally announced the colonists' intent. The fight with the British continued until September 3, 1783, two years after ratification of the Articles of Confederation, the first attempt to establish a new American government. The Articles of Confederation proved unworkable, and it quickly became clear that if this new country was to succeed, a new governmental structure was required. So in 1786, calls for a meeting in Annapolis, Maryland to discuss trade among the states, one of the issues plaguing this new nation, resulted in representatives from only five of the states attending. This lack of participation led James Madison and Alexander Hamilton to call for another convention in Philadelphia, and thank goodness they did. And on September 17, 1787, the Constitutional Convention opened, resulting in a signed and ratified US Constitution by 1788. Such a remarkable work in such little time. Some of the key aspects of this newly formed government were the concepts of co-equal branches with a separation of powers to avoid concentration in any one branch, expressly listed and limited government granted power, and a reservation of any of the authority not granted to this new federal government to remain with the states or the people. This created a clear system of federalism that sought to keep most government policy-making control at the state and local level, where government would be more responsive to the people, closer to them. Few, if any, of these important concepts remain fully intact today, as courts routinely read things in and out of the Constitution without any basis in text, and our legislature plays a little bit loose with the authorities they were actually granted. Rather than make alterations to the Constitution through the proper amendment process, the government has power grabbed from the people any real control over the limits of government by allowing the Constitution's slow destruction and revision. As we move more away from the original original principles and text of our laws, at what point are those laws illegitimate, and at what point does the government usurp so much control from the people that revolution or insurrection results just as it did for the colonists? Was the American Revolution a kind of insurrection? A kind of treason? Perhaps. We've heard the term insurrection tossed around in recent weeks, applying to certain protests of government that became violent. But isolated criminal acts during an otherwise peaceful protest does not an insurrection make. And it's not likely insurrection to refuse to comply with an illegitimate government, nor is it insurrection or treason to protest your government, especially where that government has stepped outside its expressly granted authority. But where the law itself is without moral authority, it can only be expected that it will be challenged. That was the situation with the founding. Whether we may be approaching that type of turning point again is unclear, but it is worth some real analysis in an attempt to avoid getting to a place where any protest or grievance with the government is so extreme that violence is the likely result. If we protect nothing else the founders aspired to, it should be to learn about and be engaged in the process of constantly taking steps within the law, to keep our government within its proper limits. I have a deep belief in the rule of law, that law not men should govern, and that following the law is generally necessary to properly present your grievances to your government. But the rule of law is only as strong as the legitimacy of the authority that passes that law, and here's the rub. The founders realized this idea of legitimacy and embodied it within the text of the Constitution. Britain lacked that legitimacy over the colonists by the time of the Revolution, and a review of why may help when considering the current state of affairs. The American faithfulness to the rule of law is not its uniqueness. Many prior civilizations and nations understood, at least in principle, the need to have properly established laws to govern effectively, that written law and not the whims of men should dictate governmental action, What the American founders further understood was that platitudes about the rule of law are meaningless without some form of voluntary consent and representation of the governed. Government does not hold the power. The people do. So what gives a government authority over men? In today's America, it seems that the solution to every problem is government, that the average citizen merely acquiesces to government control in nearly every aspect of life. But government cannot solve problems. It can only provide the framework within which men solve their own problems, or it creates problems. The more choice that's left to government, by necessity, the less choice, and therefore the less freedom, is left to men. The British understood this concept, but failed properly to apply it to the country's growing empire in faraway places. Instead, the British government chose control rather than freedom as a means of holding on to power. Our current government appears to be no different. So at what point does the government take more control than its legitimate scope of authority should allow? Here are some of the legal theories the founders likely considered when drafting our founding documents. They looked to British law because that's what they knew. One example is Calvin's case of 1608. This case of the British court determined that the relationship between king and subject is reciprocal. The subject owes allegiance to the king only so long as the king is protecting his subject. There is always and has always been this reciprocity. Absent this two-way relationship, subjects become unhappy and revolt. It is the nature of men. We can look, then, to the British passage of the Prohibitory Act on December 22, 1775. This act removed the colonies from the king's protection, breaking that reciprocity. Now the colonies had all of the control exerted over them that the crown desired, without any benefit from it. This required reciprocity, and the anger the colonists felt by the lack of it, can be found rooted in the no taxation without representation demands of the American colonists. The social contract is another way to look at the term and that concept of reciprocity. Men do not agree to abide by things that offer them no benefit, and in order to have a society of government, men have to consent to being governed. They have to do that, but they only do that when they're getting some benefit, when there is reciprocity. When does a government lose its legitimacy? When a government is no longer providing protection for its citizens and their freedoms, it is no longer owed the allegiance of those citizens. When a government goes beyond the authority granted to it by those it governs, it's no longer owed the allegiance of those it governs. This is consistent with a British court decision dating all the way back to 1485. That decision concluded that the British Parliament had no authority over Ireland because Ireland did not send knights to Parliament. Applying this decision to the colonies made it clear that without representation in Parliament, the colonies should not be subject to control by that body. The Parliament had gone beyond its authority because it had attempted to to take control over colonists who had no representation in it. Corruption will also undermine the legitimacy of government, and widespread corruption existed among the British who were present in the colonies. Bribery and illegal oppression were commonplace, and there were often violent instances excuse me, incidences between British soldiers and the colonists. That corruption calls into question the legitimacy of government and the fair application of laws as well. So where does the authority of government end? In the United States, that authority ends when the government goes beyond the limited powers granted to it in the constitution, the U S constitution for our federal government and the individual state constitutions for state governments. The government is also subject to its own laws and its violation of them violates the ultimate underpinning of any government legitimacy. And it is this legitimacy of government that was lacking with the British and which the Founders sought to avoid by creating United States of America. What were the Founders' primary concerns and how were they addressed in forming this new nation? No single incident led to American independence, just as no single incident has led to the current malaise or unease much of America's people have toward our government today. But reviewing what the founders were seeking to accomplish and what they did accomplish leads only to one conclusion. We must save the country they founded and the principles upon which it's based. Freedom lies at its base. Not freedom to do whatever you wish, but freedom to insist that your laws be justly passed and within the scope of government authority granted by the citizens to it. And freedom from interference with your own rights through that reciprocal protection of your government. Not only protection from outside forces, but from fellow citizens' illegal conduct as well. These freedoms are protected by the very structure of government, checks and balances that create a separation of powers among the three branches, and a limited government of expressly granted authority. These freedoms are also protected by the federalism created by the United States Constitution, which attempted to, although maybe has not been able to maintain, a decentralized government, such that the governments closest to the citizens, state and local governments, have the greatest authority. Though every problem now seemingly causes individuals to look to the government, and all too often to the federal government, the goal of our founders was just the opposite. Government was not a problem solver but a potential problem creator, such that it must be limited and controlled. And the founders' understanding about what government's role should be was informed in large part by commonly read philosophers. Philosophers Thomas Hobbes, John Locke, and Jean-Jacques Rousseau, all known to our founders, influenced them in different ways though Thomas Hobbes was no supporter of democracy, he believed in government's need for absolute power over its people, his ideas of individualism, equality, and natural rights no doubt influenced the founders. And John Locke, frequently referred to as the founder or father of democracy, focused his philosophy on the equality of men, the right to rebellion, the need for a government to govern by consent of its subjects, and the need for consent of the majority for government action. Rousseau described the same kind of beliefs as a social contract, a contract between the governed and the government as a way to secure men's rights. Each man agrees to the same contract, and the majority serves to ensure all men follow and live up to that agreement. This philosophy embodies the later British concepts of reciprocity and representation the founders took from their past and perfected for our future. And maybe saying that they take into account later British concepts is incorrect, as the British had been embodying or at least stating concepts of reciprocity and representation for centuries. They just hadn't lived up to those promises. What the founders attempted to do for us was to live up to them. So what does any of this mean and why does it matter today? Knowledge of the reasons the founders had enough with Britain's control and understanding the very carefully crafted government they put in place and all of the restrictions on it is imperative to understanding that the way America now truly may be losing its direction, at least in terms of governance and culture, is in its overwhelming and near total reliance on government as the answer. Our Constitution, as summarized earlier, includes key concepts of separation of powers, limited express powers, and federalism. All of this works together to ensure, or at least attempt to ensure, that any authority not granted the government is to be left to the people and the states. The Constitution did not and was never intended to make the federal government the final arbiter of all policy decisions, or the proper governmental body to address all societal concerns. I challenge anyone listening to find the following words in the United States Constitution. Health care, abortion, housing, education, environment, and I could go on. Hell, until a minute in the 20th century, there was no federal income tax included in the Constitution, as the founders expected and intended there would be no need, as they had created only a limited federal government. Over the years, we have lost an understanding of the foundation of our government and what government's proper role is. It should come as no shock. Our education system is failing in teaching us these principles. Students rarely pass sufficiency exams in basic civics. Instead, they can tell you all about the theories of the evils of America and its European founders, but ask these students questions about basic governmental structure and watch them flounder ask the average citizen questions from the citizenship test required of legal immigrants, and wait for the depression to sink in when you realize that those who come from elsewhere and choose this country as their home and take the proper legal steps to become citizens have a far better knowledge and appreciation for what the founders created than many of us who were simply lucky enough to be born here. The average college student who claims to support socialism cannot even define that term when asked. Of course, that they claim to be socialists or even communists should be of no surprise, A 2016 study of college and university syllabi found Karl Marx's Communist Manifesto to be the third most assigned book in American higher education. Books by those who influenced our founders, or our founders themselves, rank much, much lower, if they rank at all, in the assigned reading for school courses. More than half of citizens cannot tell you how many Supreme Court justices there there are, name a single authority granted to the federal government in the Constitution, or even tell you how many branches of government we have at the federal level. I guess that is not surprising, since less than a decade ago, a California college student was stopped from handing out copies of the Constitution, on Constitution Day, no less, because he hadn't first gotten permission from the school. When colleges and universities no longer view the U.S. Constitution as required and necessary reading, and even take steps to stop distribution of it while mandating students read marks, Is it any wonder we have strayed so far from the founding principles? I guess thank goodness government took over education, huh? Well, we've allowed our governments at every level and in every branch to stray from the text of the Constitution and to go beyond their authority, threatening any semblance of the rule of law. For if you can alter the words and meaning of the constitutional text at whim, without proper process of amendment, is there really any need for it? As society appears to accept looser interpretations of the Constitution and greater government power grabs, it is imperative we push back if we hope ever to maintain any control and limits on our government. And if we hope for the Constitution and the freest country it created to endure, we must push back. Unfortunately, Rather than a push to rein in government overreach, more and more the solution to every problem appears to be to look to more government, and frighteningly more and more to look for more federal government, that which is furthest removed from the people. And recent election results have turned over both political branches of our federal government to a party that no longer hides its desire to be involved in and to control every aspect of life in America. So to bring our discussion full circle, Let's reflect on what we can learn from the breakaway of the colonies from the British government, and what of these lessons we can apply to the current state of affairs. Is our government moving more towards illegitimacy? When news stories, individuals, and organizations discussed the novel coronavirus, discussions of state action or inaction served only as a battle cry for more and more involvement from the federal government. The question was always, what more should the federal government be doing? When protests, sometimes violent, broke out last summer over issues related to race and policing—the rioters certainly did target local police stations and governments—the discussion of resolution again turned primarily to what the federal government can do or is not doing enough of to address the problem. Admittedly, there were cries at a local level and some attempts to defund the police, but in terms of actually fixing any policing problems, it was a look to the federal government. No discussion actually occurred about whether the federal government has or should have any role at all in local policing in the first place. When issues of health care arise, few, if any, discussions are had about under what authority the federal government could act or whether states are the more appropriate place to identify proper health care policies given different concerns in different communities. Instead, it is yet another cry for federal government help. When social issues related to everything from abortion to gender identity to religion arise, it is the federal government or federal courts citizens seem to turn to more than ever, rather than their local officials. Here it's important to note that only religion of those I just listed is an actual subject addressed by the United States Constitution. And when schools are failing, the solution appears almost always to be to look to the federal government for more money, for more standards, for more action, not to local school boards and state educational policies. When disputes arise about social policy anywhere in the country, all attention is almost immediately turned to whether the Supreme Court will or can resolve this issue. Little consideration is given to whether the Supreme Court has any rightful role in making such a decision, whether different states have different interests and reasons for enacting different policies, or the fact that the Supreme Court is the one branch of the federal government not elected in some fashion by the people, meaning that allowing final policy decisions to fall to the court takes any power from the people to make these decisions and perhaps more importantly to alter them as needed by changing circumstances and times. Freedom isn't free is a common and true refrain, but freedom also isn't easy. There is a responsibility in it that is all too lacking, a responsibility to your government to keep it within its proper authority, a responsibility to engage in civil discourse with those with whom you disagree rather than to characterize them as the founders are now being characterized as villains or idiots or simply evil because they happen to disagree with you. Gone are the days when it's common to sit with your neighbor or coworker or family and discuss your differences or have a frank and open discussion with your elected representatives. But I hope through this podcast to open up that civil discourse again, and perhaps to bring some of you back to our founding principles to begin rebuilding the freedoms for which our founders and those who came after them fought so hard. Solutions to most societal issues lie in the community, not in its government, but where government is needed. And should be only in those specified areas where we, the people, have consented to that governance and are receiving some benefit, reciprocity, in exchange for our allegiance to it. Thank you for bearing with me in this first episode. It is important to have at least a basic understanding of the history that led to our founding if we are to put current events in perspective and to stay faithful to the country's founding principles. This first episode was also needed to point out the various assaults, or at least some small samples of them, on this history so that we can avoid falling for so many of the now negative views of America. This history was in no way comprehensive, but chose instead to highlight enough of the background that motivated our founders to allow a starting point for further discussions. And I know this history lesson isn't sexy, but it is necessary, and it will provide the foundation upon which we can now explore the key issues facing the country today. Next week, we'll explore the free speech protections of the First Amendment to the Constitution, the rationale behind its enactment, its actual text, the importance of the encouragement of free speech beyond merely protecting it against government interference, and the dangerous actions being taken now to censor those who wish to speak, both by our government and private actors. For if we all cannot and do not feel safe to speak freely, the nation is surely in peril, and without educating our community on the need for more, not less, speech, Podcasts like this one and many others, and any hope we have of re-engaging our society in real policy discussions may be a thing of the past. As I will end each episode, I want to consider some thoughts of the most astute observer of the new American nation at the time, Alexis de Tocqueville. De Tocqueville was a curious observer of the new American system, and his thoughts on it are prolific. As he explained, Nothing is more wonderful than the art of being free, but nothing is harder to learn how to use than freedom. It appears Americans may be losing their ability to use their freedom and learning how to use it again is important. It's time to take the actions necessary to protect the freedoms guaranteed to us by our founders and to use them properly. Until next time, stay free, stay safe, search for truth, and God bless America. The Defending Exceptionalism podcast is written and produced by Solis Veritas. Original music by Canticum Akhtar. Copyright 2021.